Matchmaking for marriage is not as uncommon in modern times as one would think. But actually, with our diverse views, beliefs, likes and dislikes to consider, I think it's probably not really something that's easy to do. Matchmaking in the world of microbes is a similar affair. For every bug, there are a host of antimicrobial matches, some that work well and some that don't work at all. And sometimes there is that one perfect drug-bug match made in heaven. Even though it can be complicated, I definitely think it's a whole lot less complicated than people matchmaking. This is a topic that was requested by one of our regular listeners. So thanks, Amy Sampson, for this episode suggestion. This is Microbe Mail, and I'm your host, Vindana Chikabai. Today, my guest is Dr. Michael LaGrange. Michael was actually one of my own microbabies. He trained at our center as a registrar, and now he's a big grown-up medical microbiologist at Ampath Laboratories. I know Michael is an avid listener of podcasts himself, and he's always suggesting great content for us to listen to. Michael, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Michael Mail. Hi, Vin. Thanks for having me. Um, it's a new experience not to be a listener. And um, hopefully those that are listening um, find um, medical microbiology as interesting as we do. Um, congrats on the one year of pod- podcasting. Awesome. Um, and hopefully um, you'll make another year. And in a year's time, I'll make the, the, the recap episodes. <laughs> um, sure you will. <laughs> Um, And then also, uh, just to let the listeners know, um, congratulations on your associate professorship. Uh, Oh, thanks. And then just, uh, are you guys still doing the chocolate bets um, in the the lab based on the bacterial ID and morphology before the formal ID comes out? I do now and then. Usually when I've run out of chocolate or I'm feeling like a chocolate craving, I'll find something to place a bet on. (laughs) (laughs) So for our listeners, a quick reminder. Um, remember that you can sign up on our MicroMail website to the newsletter. You can also follow MicroMail on social media. And remember to share MicroMail with your friends, coworkers, and colleagues. And all the links we talk about are available in the episode show notes. So, Michael, are you ready to do some matchmaking or some drug, budge, drug bug matching? I think let's do it. Let's do the drug bug matching. Um, it's definitely a till death do us part combination. <laughs> or one can say one is in in love and war when it comes to <laughs> that's so true okay so i think probably the safest place for us to start talking about this is the drugs themselves um and i i think something that we really need to talk about and advertise if we could say is the antibiotic spectrum of activity um and why it matters to know this yeah, thanks, Vin. Um, I think it sounds like a simple question, but it might have a bit of a, a complex answer. Um, and I don't want to bore your, your listeners with too much of history, um, but just to be aware that, I mean, this is not intrinsic knowledge to anyone. And before an antibiotic even gets to use in humans, it's tested with numerous antibiotic and bacteria observations. Um, these are observed by pharmaceutical companies and in, and in labs, and they observe which um, bacteria are inhibited um, by the antibiotic that, that they are testing. Um, and those bacteria that the antibiotic tends to inhibit the growth, um, these are the ones that, it, that, the, that the antibiotic inhibits. This is called the spectrum of the antibiotic. But now if you're on a ward round or something, that doesn't really roll off the tongue. So simple definitions, um, some of that would use is, it's a range of bacteria without acquired resistance that antibiotics can kill or inhibit. 
um, or even more clinically relevant, it would probably just say it is the range of anti the range of bacteria that an antibiotic is effective against, particularly in a in a clinical um, aspect. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, and then so, and then. Some antibiotics are only effective against a small range of bacteria. Uh, these are what we call the so-called narrow spectrum antibiotics. Um, and some antibiotics are effective against a wide range of bacteria. These are the so-called broad spectrum antibiotics. Mm. Um, and it matters to know the spectrum of activity because one wants to use an antibiotic that is effective against the targeted bacteria, or in the clinical situation, the most likely bacteria causing an infection prior to our specimen processing and ID of the organism. Um, so for example, if you're targeting um, something like an intra-abdominal infection that may include anaerobic organisms, you would require an antibiotic that has, this, has, has anaerobic um, coverage. Hope that's helpful. Yeah, that's a nice way to start. And for any of the listeners who are interested in listening to more information about susceptibility and the MICs, um, I refer you back to the episode called What's in an MIC? And we go into a lot more detail there. So that's really quite nice. And also, again, for the listeners, if you look at a variety of different places, you'll find spectrum of activity tables in quite a lot of places. I mean, if you just Google it, you'll find a whole lot of them. There are a lot of antimicrobial apps as well, right, Michael, um, that have spectrum of activity. So it's not something someone needs to remember um, you know, in full detail. There are references and resources available for that. Yeah, I definitely recommend making use of those um, resources. Okay, so then let's look at a few examples of commonly used antibiotics and their spectrum of activity. Okay, I think we can do that. Um, an antibiotic which everyone has heard about is penicillin. Yeah. Um, it's the OG um, antibiotic. Um, and if we use that um, definition with no um, acquired resistance mechanisms. So um, penicillin, when it was introduced, initially had very broad coverage. It covers syphilis, um, caused by treponema pallidum. Most gram positives of clinical importance, including um, Staphylococcus aureus, Streptococcus pyogenes, group B Streptococcus, Streptococcus pneumonia, enterococci, um, listeria. So the list goes on. It didn't have much gram negative cover, um, well, still doesn't. Um, but it did cover Haemophilus influenzae and Neisseria gonorrhea and our uh, haystack organisms. Um, and at the time that it was introduced, it actually covered quite a lot of anaerobes. Mm. Um, but a lot of these organisms, with the exception of beta hemolytic strep and syphilis, have, can develop resistance quite quickly. Um, and so although penicillin has this broad spectrum of activity, um, it's no longer the first choice for these infections. Um, one of the examples is you notice that Staphylococcus aureus is included in this list, but it has required a penicillinase, which has a high penetration in the Staph aureus um, um, population in the community, mm. um, and it's very prevalent. So it wouldn't be considered a clinically effective antibiotic choice empirically um, in these organisms. Yeah. So I'm going to do the next one, which is macrolides. Um, and one common example of a macrolide is erythromycin. So when there's absolutely no resistance, then erythromycin is very similar in terms of spectrum of activity to the penicillins. Um, so in general at medical school, and even now you're taught that if a person is penicillin allergic, then you give them a macrolide um, uh, for, the, for the treatment that they need. Um, so something really important to remember is that macrolides don't have any anaerobic cover. 
Um, but they are also effective against non-cell wall bacteria. So these are things like chlamydia, some of your mycoplasma and rickettsia. And just as a quick um, sort of tip to remember is that it covers those atypical organisms that cause uh, community-acquired pneumonia. So that's one of those situations where you actually can't use a penicillin but would need a macrolide. Cool, that's a great, great summary. Um, I think maybe let's go with some more um, clinically um, used spe specific antibiotics. Um, so one that's quite commonly used and um, you can, we can, is vancomycin. Um, mm. So basically, if you want to keep it simple in your head, um, vancomycin basically covers every gram positive, um, but that's also not true. There's no absolutes. The only absolute is there's no absolutes. So um, every clinical microbiologist and infectious diseases clinicians needs to memorize a list, particularly for their primary exam. Yep. So um, vancomycin won't cover, um, as is in the name, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, mm -hmm. um, but then also a, a large group of organisms such as leuconostoc, lactobacilli, um, specific enterococcus species such as Gallinarium and Cassia flavus, um, and then ones that have got new names like Wylanella and Pediococcus, and then forgive my pronunciation because I think this organism is unpronounceable, Eurysothalprix <laughs> ruzithapi. Um, we don't see it very often in our clinical experience, but it is something to be to be aware of. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and then at least like the intrinsically resistant, a lot of these intrinsically resistant organisms, except for vancomycin resistant enterococci, tend to remain susceptible to penicillin. So even though they are intrinsically resistant in a clinical um, perspective, you've probably already covered this organism um, with penicillin or a penicillin derivative in your treatment. Yeah. And just to add to that, these are not really common to see vancomycin resistant gram positive organisms in general the greater majority of gram positives are susceptible to vancomycin. There's just these weird and wonderful and the more uncommon ones. Yeah, the ones that we love to learn about. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so shall we look at then one gram negative? You've done a broad gram positive covering antibiotic. We can do one broad gram negative one. Yeah, I think that's, so, a, that's a good idea. Yeah, so something like colistin. So that not so common for our listeners who work in outpatient practices, as would vancomycin be, um, but certainly anybody listening who works in a hospital setting um, and in the era of multi-drug resistance um, and difficult to treat resistant gram negatives, we are using a lot more colistin. So colistin is pretty much the opposite of vancomycin in that it only covers gram negative organisms. So if you've got kind of a polymicrobial infection, like Michael was talking about the intra-abdominal infections, often you'd see gram positives and gram negatives. Um, using colistin on its own is not a great idea, unless you've proven that there are only gram negatives there. Again, it's one of those antibiotics that is very restricted, so it shouldn't be given to anyone and everyone. But just to let you know from the spectrum of activity perspective, it covers all gram negatives, except a couple of them which are intrinsically resistant. And those include things like Morganella, uh, Burkholderia, Proteus species, Nicera species, and Moraxella species. Again, these are things you're going to see in hospital practice, and your microbiologist is always available to explain what that is. Okay, shall we move on, Michael? 
Yeah, I think let's, let's move on with the drug bug combinations. Okay. So I suppose we've spoken enough about the antibiotics now, but we do, do need to also talk about the bugs themselves. So what do you think would be important things that the clinician needs to know about some of these bacteria to help them make the right drug choice? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a two-way relationship, so we definitely need to know about both. I think it's just a good to be aware that so antibiotics tend to target the vital functions or structures that bacteria require for survival. So any major differences between groups of bacteria or even um, bacteria species in the same genera, where there is a difference in these major targets, will affect the susceptibility to um, an antibiotic. So I think the easiest thing here to consider is the bacterial cell wall, um, which in clinical aspect is represented by your gram stain report. So if it's gram positive, purple organism, um, you can almost say that the organism has a thick peptoglycan um, cell wall, which is generally ex kind of exposed to the environment. Whereas if you get your gram negative pink organisms, they have a thin peptoglycan cell wall. And this is protected between a bacteria inner and outer membrane. I'm not going to get further into details of bacterial structure. And I mean, and this simple difference means certain cell wall antibiotics are not effective against gram negatives. And I think just as we um, have discussed, um, so gram negatives tend to be resistant to um, vancomycin <clears throat> and also um, the first generation cephalosporins, which tend to target more um, the gram positives and the target um, and we're unable to cross that um, outer membrane. Um, that's just one example, um, and it's a great simplification, um, but I hope it um, helps to consolidate some of the ideas in, in the listeners' minds. Yes, and I think reminding the listeners about the grand stain and the importance of the understanding the grand stain um, is really key because most MCNS reports still start off with the grand stain result before getting to the organism ID. So yeah, that was great. Um, so how shall we do this next? Shall we talk about the differences between intrinsic resistance um, and acquired resistance? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I think it's another simple yet complicated um, concept. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, um, resistance to an antibiotic means that if an antibiotic is used to treat or target um, a specific bacteria, um, the bacteria is able to survive and continue to proliferate and cause infection and disease, whatever resistance mechanism um, the, the bacteria is using. Um, so what's the difference between intrinsic and acquired? Um, so intrinsic is when a bacterial species is naturally resistant to a certain antibiotic or family of antibiotics. So what does naturally mean? So this is, means it's resistant without the need um, for a mutation or a gain of further genes um, to develop this resistance. This means that the, the antibiotics to which this organism is intrinsically resistant to can never be used to treat the infection caused um, by these um, bacteria. Um, and another aspect is we can test for this, the expression of this resistance in the lab so we can see it. Um, there are some intrinsic resistance which we can't test um, for with certain, certain organisms. But then, so what's acquired resistance? So acquired resistance occurs when a usually susceptible bacteria obtains the ability to resist the activity of an antimicrobial agent to which it was susceptible. So this can result from the mutation of genes involved in normal physiological processes and cellular structures, um, from the acquisition of foreign resistance genes or from a combination of these um, mutations. So unlike intrinsic resistance, 
Um, the traits associated with acquired resistance are only found in some strains or subpopulations of a particular bacterial species. Um, yeah. Yeah, so just to kind of go back to that previous question that we answered with um, spectrum of activity. So where we were talking about it doesn't have activity against certain organisms, like we said about colistin and vancomycin, those are intrinsic resistance mechanisms in those particular organisms. Whereas the acquired resistance you would generally see on your lab report, right? Yeah, you should definitely, well, we should be able to pick up the um, acquired resistance. It's, it's the main reason why we're doing antibiotic susceptibility testing mm. um, to, to, to discover the organisms that have required resistance and will impact your management of these infections. Yeah, in that individual patient, yeah. Okay, so then that brings us to the easiest aspect of drug bug matching, and that is knowing which bugs are intrinsically resistant to certain drugs. So we've, as I said, we've given a couple of examples, but I think Michael's got a few kind of practical examples to give us here. Yeah, we can go through some. Uh, just, just to say, I mean, it's not easy, but I mean, the, your ClinMicro and your infectious diseases um, physician will know these things generally because we deal with them daily, but even we have to refer to um, reference lists. So I think clinicians that are not dealing with this on an everyday basis um, feel free to give us a call um, and don't be upset if you haven't got this, these lists memorized. Um, but I think some common day examples, um, one that everyone talks about is Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, due to various mechanisms, um, it's intrinsically resistant to many commonly used um, antibiotics. Um, so I think for this one, it might be easier just to say what it is susceptible to. Mm. Um, and because this is such a small group, it's even its own group, we, we refer to them as anti-pseudomonal um, um, antibiotics. Um, so some of the lists that you know, so beta-lactams, um, piperacillin, um, which is only available in South Africa as piptaz, um, keftazidim, but not keftraxone, kefepim, um, ovulcarbapenems, imipenem, miropenem, and doripenem, um, your aminoglycosides, um, and ciprofloxacin. Um, and ciprofloxacin is our only oral option um, or fluoroquinolones if you, that we have available for Pseudomonas. Mm. And then for those that are keeping up to date with new introductions of antibiotics, the new beta-lactam, beta-lactam inhibitor, um, keftozolane, um, tazobactam, and also that last resort organism, colistin, um, that uh, back antibiotic that you mentioned, colistin. Um, so that means it's essentially intrinsically resistant to all other antibiotics in our armamentarium that we have available. Mm. Um, and in addition to that, sadly, Pseudomonas, uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa can develop acquired resistance to any one or combination of these limited antibiotics that we have available. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an important one to know about, and um, it's why antimicrobial stewardship is so important with regards to this organism. Um, then more common things that are encountered, such as Klebsiella pneumonia, which is intrinsically resistant to ampicillin because it produces a, um, a beta-lactamase, which is narrow and targets um, penicillin. Um, protea species, as we mentioned earlier, um, some species have specific extra intrinsic resistance, but as a genera, um, if it's causing a urinary tract infection, unfortunately, your nitrofurantone is not going to be um, useful. Um, because it's physically resistant. If you're using tigercycline in a complicated abdominal infection, you need to be aware that it wouldn't cover proteus if it's in it. 
And this is one of those groups that, as you mentioned, is intrinsically resistant um, to colistin. Um, so if it develops resistance mechanisms, we've got very limited um, antibiotics to use this. And then enterococci, which um, if they're causing an infection, um, it's good to be aware that they are intrinsically resistant to cephalosporins, especially considering that cephalosporins form the backbone of a lot of our um, in-hospital um, treatment regimes. Um, so those are some of the common ones. And then there are some rare organisms. Well, they're rare to most clinicians, um, but they're very interesting and they're common to the micro lab and infectious diseases. And some of them have been making um, the news out there. Um, so it's organisms like stenotrophomonas. Let me repeat that. Stenotrophomonas multifilia and um, Burkholderia cepatia, which is very important in cystic fibrosis patients. Um, yeah, so I think that's a little bit of an overview of some of the common and not so common intrinsically resistant bugs. Yeah, so that was a nice way to put together the quick drug bug matching. Um, and then also, I just wanted to add to that. So the enterococci being resistant to cephalosporin, even with these new uh, beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations, if there is some kind of component of cephalosporin in that drug, it's not going to have activity against the enterococci. Um, yeah, so that was a really nice rundown. So how should we talk about matching drugs and bugs appropriately when it comes to acquired resistance? And can you maybe talk through a couple of common ones? Yeah, so this is a, it's a very uh, important concept and I don't wanna to talk too long um, or go on rambling. So one of the concepts to um, understand is not all mechanisms of resistance are the same, even if the outcome of resistance is the is resistance to the same antibiotic. And we'll go through that with the examples. Um, and if we uh, can identify certain res resistance mechanisms in the laboratory, it can inform appropriate antibiotic choices, even if we haven't tested every single antibiotic. Mm -hmm. um, in the laboratory, we currently use two main techniques for identifying acquired resistance mechanisms. Um, those are phenotypic and molecular. Um, in our environment, um, we most commonly use the phenotypic um, to to identify acquired resistance. Um, but sometimes we do need to use both, especially with new and developing um, resistance mechanisms. Um, and so most phenotypic techniques are from identifying unique resistance patterns with on the resistance plates um, or resistance to specifically tested antibiotics on the antibiotic susceptibility plate, which allows us to ex extrapolate um, resistance to other antibiotics um, that the bacteria may be resistant to. Yeah, so I think one of the most common and well-studied examples is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, um, or MRSA. So once an MRSA isolate is identified, we don't have to test it against every beta-lactam um, available in the laboratory. So, and, and we know that an MRSA isolate will be resistant to all um, beta-lactams. Um, and MRSA is resistant to all these beta-lactams because the penicillin binding protein to which most beta-lactams bind and therefore prevent the peptidoglycan cross-linking um, and results in cell lysis is altered in MRSA. And beta-lactams cannot bind to this new altered penicillin binding protein and there is no cell lysis and therefore the staphylococcus is resistant. So that's quite a lot of information to try to synthesize from phenotypic um, susceptibility plates. But luckily, we've got a 
research and validation studies, and we've identified a simple way to identify this in the lab. And for Staph aureus, we test susceptibility against um, an antibiotic uh, on an antibiotic disc, and that antibiotic is called capoxetin. And so if the zone size is small, um, we have defined zone sizes in the lab, mm -hmm. um, then we would say that it is, is resistant, and we refer that we have a methicillin-resistant Staph aureus isolate, and it is resistant to all other beta-lactams except these new fifth generation cephalosporins, which if we want to talk about, we can, so-called fifth genera generation cephalosporins. Mm -hmm. And if the zone size is larger than the screening breakpoint, then it is a methicillin susceptible Staph aureus, and we can use um, our methicillin specific beta-lactams, and it is susceptible to other beta-lactams, um, except for beta-lactams if we don't have breakpoints. So we don't have a breakpoint against keftazidine for Staph aureus, so we don't extrapolate it to that. Mm. Um, and this is extremely important in guiding antibiotic use. Um, and also, this resistance mechanism is transferable between bacteria, and therefore, infection prevention control measures are also important if we've identified this mechanism of resistance. Mm. Um, there is also molecular tests for this mechanism. Um, it might be a bit beyond the scope of this talk. Also, it's not a prevalent method that we're currently using in um, our South African environment. Okay, that was a really yeah. nice way to look through um, that. Um, and also just to talk about before we have these susceptibility results available, um, either hospital groups or microbiology laboratories, and sometimes in certain settings, um, antimicrobial stewardship pharmacists are involved in providing antibiograms. Um, and antibiograms are kind of retrospective data, which tell you what the organisms have been for the last six months or so, and what the susceptibility patterns have been. So it's really important to kind of look at both what has been recently in your unit or in your practice um, in conjunction with what the current testing methods are, are showing in, for your patients as well. So, yeah, just to add that it's, it's also important to look back um, at what's been there recently. Yeah, definitely. Um, it definitely will help you to guide, guide your therapy, um, knowing what's, what's prevalent in your, your unit. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean... And we spoke, so we've spoken about Staph aureus and their, that their mechanism of resistance. I think if you contrast this with beta-lactamase resistance in the gram negatives, um, particularly the interbacterales, mm -hmm. um, these tend to follow a predictable stepwise development of beta-lactamase um, resistance. As the various antibiotics were introduced into clinical use, the interbacterales developed <laughs> um, resistance, unfortunately. Um, but unlike the mechanism in Staph aureus where the target of the beta-lactams was changed, the mechanism here is the bacteria producing enzymes which break down the beta-lactam antibiotics. Um, they do this by breaking down the beta-lactam ring. And these enzymes which break down the beta-lactam are called beta-lactamases. Um, and we can see um, this evolution, um, as I said, because every time a new beta-lactam was introduced, a beta-lactamase evolved. So we introduced penicillin and a penicillinase um, evolved. We introduced yeah. modified penicillins and the first and second generation cephalosporins. And then the enzyme changed to be able to target these um, antibiotics as well. Then we thought mm -hmm. we had solved the problem with the so-called third generation cephalosporins, extended spectrum cephalosporins. 
And what did the bacteria do? They made extended spectrum beta bacteria. <laughs> they always <laughs> one step ahead of us, Michael. <laughs> yeah, and and um, now, and unfortunately, we introduced the carbapenems, which were stable against the extended spectrum beta lactamases, and the bacteria have now developed carbapenemases. No. Um, yeah, and these require specialized antibiotics, new developed beta lactamase inhibitors. Um, and this is again where we come into where we need phenotypic and molecular, because I don't want to go into the carbapenemases, it's a, it's a rabbit hole, maybe for another episode. Mm. Um, but the carbapenemases have groups of enzymes which we can test for um, molecularly. And that molecular structure of the carbapenemases determines whether or not some of these new beta-lactam, beta-lactam inhibitors are able to um, inhibit those enzymes and can be used um, for treatment. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, this is the, the drug-resistant apocalypse that is finally, eventually making the news um, and the important important um, awareness around yeah. this topic. Mm. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, even when we test some bacteria, we cannot predict. So back to our old friend, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, it's got so many resistance mechanisms um, that you have to wait for the laboratory result to know what it is resistant to. Um, I mean, in the laboratory, we can try and infer what, what are the resistance mechanisms, but from a clinical perspective, you need that report to say it's resistant to this, um, susceptible, susceptible to that. Um, and as you can tell, it can get quite complicated because, yeah, we're only looking at one class of antibiotic to some groups of bacteria. Um, so this, this, these are present for almost all antibiotics and, and different groups of bacteria have different, different mechanisms. So please don't try and memorize um, all these all these mechanisms, um, that's what your friendly clinical microbiologist there is to help with as a reference. Yeah, and they, I think the microbiologists also have a sense of what's floating around in different units as well. So always helpful to try and have a chat to them. <laughs> so Michael, you know, I hear some of our listeners whispering under their breath, but, but when I see my patient, I don't know what bug they've got until I get the NCNS report. So how am I supposed to match? Um, so I, I don't know if you've got some tips for that. Yeah, so I think this is a tip that might be um, already being used in process and people don't realize it, um, is ready to refer to your guidelines. Um, so this is where clinical, laboratory, and your local epidemiology come together, and experts in the field can help and develop guidelines to help choose your empiric antibiotic. Um, so you should be familiar with your guidelines locally for community-acquired pneumonias, urinary tract infections, skin and soft tissue infections, and surgical prophylaxis. Um, so I don't think we need to go through every guideline individually, um, but I do think it's important that your guideline be as local as possible, mm. um, which means one needs your local susceptibilities, epidemiology, and availability of antibiotics in your environment to have a relevant guideline. Um, and if you cannot find a specific guideline, um, this is going to be quite local um, for South Africans, is you can always consult our essential medicines drug list um, we have a hospital and a community um, um, drug list, um, and these have treatment algorithms um, available for South Africa. Um, just have a look in the infectious disease chapters. Mm, um, they also break it up into adult and pediatric. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very helpful um, clinically. Um, and also consider developing a hospital-specific guideline if it's available. Um, you're not reinventing the wheel here. You're putting your local antibiogram into your national guideline structure. 
And then you need to integrate your history and clinical findings um, with the guideline recommendations. And then I'm just going to give you a, a, a plug, Vin. Um, you developed an almost in real time antimicrobial um, um, antibiogram program for, for where you're working. So I think uh, your clinicians need to be aware that you have that real time data um, provide, to provide them guidance. Yeah, so I think it's one of those things that we, not just South Africa, but probably other low and middle income settings, struggle to get antibiogram data from the, either their microbiology labs or stewardship programs. Um, but yeah, chat to whoever's got your lab data and see what they can do. So in our resource limited setting, we were able to put together a little Excel dashboard um, that's proving to be quite helpful and quite a few other labs um, in the NHLS countrywide, I've been using that as well. So yeah, certainly something to talk about. Maybe I need to have an episode on antibiograms, what they are and how to use them. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's vital, vital knowledge for people that are prescribing antibiotics, particularly in the hospitals. Definitely going to add it to the list there. <laughs> um, so Michael, let's touch on the final stage of drug bulk matching um, when it comes to using the microbiology and CNS report. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the tools that we have available to help guide um, antibiotic choice is selective reporting. Um, so I don't want people to look at selective reporting as only about um, restricting antibiotics. It also assists in directing to the most optimal antibiotic choice, so your drug, for the organism isolated, your bug. So we, we want to make the best drug-bug match. Often the clinical microbiologist has taken into account the clinical syndrome. That's if we're given any history on the forms. Um, the, the laboratory findings, so what re resistance mechanisms um, we are suspecting, MICs if they're available, and the spectrum and type and appropriateness of antibiotic choice before selective reporting. And therefore, um, it's not just a restrictive tool, but it's an important AMS tool um, to ensure that the most effective use of antibiotics um, is used in patients with certain clinical syndromes. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that's an important use of the MCNS report. Mm. And, and also there's special considerations for drug bug matching in certain patient populations. And this is another thing that we look at when we are um, performing selective reporting on these microbiology lab reports. Um, and something that we need to be mindful of all the time. So can you run through a couple of these, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. Um, very important concept. I mean, this can affect um, your our drug bug um, considerations. So I'm not going to go too much into about pregnant women, as you've just had an excellent two-parter on infections in pregnancy. Um, and I think it covers the topic amazingly. And as you can tell, two episodes, it is a broad, broad topic. Mm. Um, but other aspects to consider is the extremes of age. Um, it affects uh, metabolism of, of antibiotics um, and also to which infections and particular um, and bacteria that a person is susceptible to. So, for example, in the neonate period, um, we've got group B strep, potential listerium monocytogenes to worry about. And these require the addition in your empiric treatment of meningitis um, ampicillin to the usual keftraxone um, that, that we would use. So that's just one, one example, but these are, are things that are important to, to consider. Yeah. Um, and we probably need a whole episode to talk about the elderly and renal dysfunction and all of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if, you know, where a drug is available um, and always look at what the adverse effects are and the contraindications before prescribing a drug. I think 
people think antibiotics are safer than they really are. Um, and we need to start kind of changing that mindset a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think in our environment, um, we need to be aware of the immunocompromised and how that changes um, infections, so-called traditional trajectory um, mm. and how long and what you would be using for treatment. Absolutely. Um, we haven't spoken about fungi in this episode at all. And I wonder whether we should just have a very quick chat about drug bug matching mm. for fungi and I think more specifically species causing candidemia. Yeah, um, we can have a look. Unfortunately, this is an area where there's a bit of a paucity of data, um, opening a bit of a can of worms. And if the taxonomists have their way, I don't think there'll be any candidate left to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you noticed that I was very careful when I said species causing candidemia rather than saying candida species. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, but candidemia, I think it's important to realize that it's a serious life-threatening infection, but also it's usually occurring in vulnerable patients that are already exposed to broad-spectrum antibiotics. They normally have some form of invasive procedure on them. Um, and if you look at most of the guidelines out there, the empiric um, antifungal of choice is an echinocandin. And then where you can, you to de-escalate to an azole, usually fluconazole, um, once you've got source control and you've shown a response to therapy. Um, but there are some drug-bug relationships that can pre be predicted based on the ID while awaiting for antifungal susceptibilities. This is important because antifungal susceptibilities um, are more difficult and take longer to come out than antimicrobial susceptibilities. We have less information about them. So some combinations don't even have a susceptibility breakpoint and we extrapolate from consensus breakpoints. Mm -hmm. And even some labs don't even um, test antifungal susceptibility. So if you want them, you have to do it as a send out and then that can even delay um, results further. Mm -hmm. um, but I think like as a general guideline, you can consider Canada albicans, Dablinensis and Tropicalis, they, you can consider them susceptible to all three of the major antifungal groups, the azoles, the echinocandins, um, and amphotericin B. Um, then there's candida parapsilosis. Um, so elsewhere in the world, it tends to be susceptible to all three major antifungal groups. But in South Africa, particularly in our pediatric and neonatal units, candida parapsilosis tends to be resistant to fluconazole. So that wouldn't be your empiric choice um, while you're waiting for susceptible results. Then this horrible, horrible um, candida auris. Um, in a global scale, it's quite unpredictable. It's known as the MDR or multi-drug resistant candida. Um, but in our local context, it tends to still be susceptible to echinocandins and amphotericin B. Um, um, so those, those would be your empiric. Mm. Um, then I'm going to try some of these new names. If I say them incorrectly, I apologize. Then there's <laughs> Canada Lusitanii, um, now known as Clavispora Lusitanii. Mm. Um, so fluconazole here is the treatment of choice. Um, this being, so although it's not intrinsically resistant, it may develop resistance on exposure to amphotericin B and the echinocandins. So if you've got this rare candida, you need to be monitoring your patient for, for response um, and again, ensure source, source control. Mm. Um, um, one that's becoming more common in ICUs, Candida glabrata or Nacosiomyces glabrata. I don't know if okay. I got that right, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
uh, which is relatively resistant to fluconazole. Um, it has much higher MIC. So in the critically ill, you should ideally avoid it. Um, and so go with an echinocandin or amphotericin B. But um, in the literature, it's even been reported that it's more prone to develop echinocandin resistance. So it's another thing to be aware of and why we need to um, advocate for antifungal susceptibility testing. Mm. And then another rare one, Candia cruzii, which I'm just going to make up a pronunciation here. It's now <laughs> known as... Go for it. <laughs> Pichia cudria zevii. Well um, done. There's a fancy V just randomly in this. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this um, candida species is intrinsically resistant to fluconazole, so you wouldn't even consider it in the treatment if you get this ID on your, on your report. But just to be aware that if these are coming out and it's a species name that you don't know, please phone your um, microbiologist. And we've often probably put a comment on the report to, to point out these, these mechanisms on the, of, of, the, of the fungals. Yeah, that was great, Michael. So I think we've covered quite a lot, and I hope we haven't put our listeners in a bit of a tiz with all the micro <laughs> names and intrinsic resistance and acquired resistance, and I hope we haven't chased them away. But just before we do, <laughs> I think we can move on and maybe go to our spotlight feature. And yeah, let's do it. You ready to play a game? Let's see. Hopefully uh, I don't do too bad. Okay. So we're going to play Who Murdered the Microbe? And Michael... If you win, I owe you a chocolate this time, just like old times on the Black Culture Bench Round. What do you think? I think that's that's great. That's perfect. Um, I still like the Twix chocolate, you know. Okay. All so. right. It's a deal. <laughs> cool. And in addition, remember, you still get a microbe named after you. So, yeah, stakes are properly high this time. Yeah, geez. Double, double the thing. <laughs> okay. So, listen carefully. It was a dark and stormy night. The hired assassin had an ID tag saying gram positive cocci in clusters, DNA is positive. It entered the alveoli of the unsuspecting elderly woman. The assassin did its thing and got the old lady admitted to the ICU. Things were going well. In a few hours, the target would be dead. Then suddenly, things take a turn. She's given a new drug. It's oral. Seems they've given her 600 milligrams 12 hourly. The drug starts binding to the 50S subunit of the assassin, inhibits its protein synthesis production. In no time, the assassin cannot cause any more damage. The old lady is saved and the assassin is taken out. Who was the assassin and who murdered this microbe? Oh, Vin, I love that story. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Um, so I'm going to go that the assassin was uh, old nemesis. Um, uh, Staphylococcus aureus. Yeah. Um, and and then the well the the antibiotic against it is um, linezolid. Um, oral option. Great oral absorption. Good lung penetration. Um, covers MSSA and MRSA. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a great choice. Um, empirically, especially in an elderly patient who may have been exposed to previous hospital um, exposure. Yeah, and might also have some renal dysfunction, which would make you avoid vancomycin if this was an MRSA. Well done, Michael. That's amazing. So I owe you a Twix. And in addition to that, your new microbe name is Lagrangiella Michaelens. Oh, I like it. Um, also, you know, with my 
unusual name spelling. It's going to create um, difficulties with spelling. It's always good to have an <laughs> organism name that, that, that creates controversy. You, you were complaining <laughs> about the fungal names. Try getting this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, Michael. So can you summarize for our listeners how to go about matching bugs and the appropriate drugs? Or I don't know, maybe you've got a couple of quick matchmaking tips. If the humankind, if you really want to, but preferably if the microbial kind. <laughs> I think I'll stick with the bugs. I'll take no responsibility <laughs> for any, any human matchmaking. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, so we've mentioned some of the tips already. Um, if you're not commonly in microbiology and infectious diseases, might sound like a broken record, but contact your microbiologist um, and get your local guidelines to help you. Um, um, guide your your empiric therapy, and then I think maybe as a final message, um, although yeah we've only spoken about the drug bug interactions, um, keeping in our theme of matchmaking, this may be more of a throuple situation um, <laughs> as your your drug bug, and then the location is important as we briefly yeah. um, um, discussed. So what happens in a petri dish is different to what's happening in a person, and also even in a person where the infection in the person's, whether it's the lung, urinary tract, also impacts your antibiotic choices. Um, but I think that consideration, maybe you should have a separate episode on, on thruples. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good suggestion. Sure, I'm getting lots of episode suggestions today. <laughs> I need to add them to that. That is amazing, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me on, on Michael Mill. It was so much fun. Yeah, thanks, Lynn. Thanks for the, thanks for the invite. Um, hopefully I've got a podcast voice. Um, and I hope, as you said before, I hope it didn't confuse with too many new concepts um, and people learn something. Um, yeah. Great. And don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> don't forget to like and subscribe. Absolutely. <laughs> Listeners, we'd love any feedback you have by email or even on social media. Remember to share this episode with anyone who might benefit from the content. And until next time, that's it from me, Ben, for my good messenger. See you again soon with more. Okay. Yeah,